Once again, sorry to break up good conversation. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Uh, once again, we're really glad that you're here this morning, especially if you're a guest with us. Um, welcome. Um, we are glad that you're here. And yes, this week has been uh, crazy, um, to say the least. Um, one of my, uh, my, my buddies on uh, Twitter, I think he posted something last night about dressing up for Halloween. And he says, I think I'm going to put on a 2020, one of those 2020 New Year's glasses you get that people wear around, and he's going to walk around and basically, like, tear up everybody's yard, like, pull their yard signs out and throw them and, like, steal kids' candy and then, like, dump kids' candy out and just run around, like, with this, like, mean cackle laugh that, like, I'm 2020 and I'm 2020. And so just, just to, like, make a point of how awful this year has been. Um, and, yes, we get an ice storm that is what Eugenia says is the second worst ever in Oklahoma this week. And so it just can, I guess it can get worse. So um, please, 2021, come quickly. So um, two more important things. First Corinthians. We are still in this series, and we find ourselves in chapter 7. And we are going to read a passage um, starting in verse 1 of chapter 7 all the way to verse 16. So we're going to cover a lot today. So let's jump in. Let me read this passage. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray in this passage that is um, in parts difficult to understand. I pray you give us wisdom. You give us understanding to be able to, to think well this morning. And I pray that uh, your spirit through this word would change our minds and would change our hearts and would change the way we live as we leave this place, and especially those of us who are married as it relates to our spouses, and even those who are single as, as, as the, the singles relate to um, 
people they were dating or roommates or classmates or whatnot and how that this can apply uh, in that way as well. And we love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So here's what we have. We, we're, we need to be careful of the context here because the last two weeks um, we talked about sex, sexual immorality, and now we come into marriage. And up to this point, uh, for a lot of the letter, Paul has been writing in reaction to things he's hearing about the Corinthian church's behavior. So he's, it's kind of reactionary, and he's addressing these issues as he hears them. Well, there's a little change in direction today. He actually says, he's going to say that, that he received a letter from them, and they're writing this letter with questions. And so it's a little different tone because they're actually writing this letter asking Paul questions that probably relate to a lot of the church. And as Paul is, again, writing this letter, putting it together, he, he has kind of control on where he wants to put things, and he decides to answer this question right after he's addressed the sexual immorality happening in the church. So it's important to understand that this is flowing out of that. And it also, uh, we talked about these two or three massive really theological ideas the last couple of weeks, which really helped frame this passage because You've got to remember, as, Paul's, as Paul would send this letter, they would stand up and they would read this letter to the church, probably all in one sitting. So the things that we talked about last week would have been really fresh on their mind, and since they, they had just immediately heard it, as they are um, hearing what we are going to talk about in chapter 7. So context is really important here. And so he's going to start with this question, and they're really asking a question about sex inside the context of marriage. Um, but he's going to use that as a jumping off point to really unpack um, really what marriage is and what marriage is about. Um, but first we have to, uh, to, to think about, well, how does our culture um, define marriage? Like, What is marriage as it relates to our culture? And I found this uh, paragraph in this article this week, I thought it was really helpful because I, in my mind this describes our culture's view on marriage really well. Nothing is more exciting or fulfilling than finding and pursuing your one true love. This is the basis of countless stories. If you find that special someone, that soulmate, you think is your perfect fit, you need to heed the call of destiny and do everything in your power to pursue this new love. This is the fantasy we dream of before we're married. And if marriage doesn't work out, we may revive the dream and continue pursuing that soulmate. And if we see, you see stories, you see TV shows, you see movies, this is like 90, 95% of the relationships in these, in the love stories in this, in, in our culture really follow something like this template here. And really that marriage is kind of this just thing you do when you really, really love someone. It's kind of the, the, the yeah, like if, if, if I'm romantically attracted to someone and we've been together a little while, then we, we, we should get married or we might as well get married. So there's not a lot of thought our culture puts into marriage and actually what it is. Here's, here's John Piper's definition of marriage, and this is a great, I think, biblical definition of marriage. God designed marriage as a lifelong commitment between one man and one woman for their mutual joy. I love that word, mutual joy. The, goal, the good of society and the procreation of children. Marriage ultimately displays the glory and grace of God by picturing the unbreakable relationship between Christ and his church. And that's what we're going to spend the majority of our time on today, talking about how marriage is the telling of the, the gospel story. It's the telling of the relationship between Christ and the church, his people. 
But like I mentioned earlier, context is really important in this passage because that, you probably even were having trouble following some of this as I was reading this a minute ago because Paul knows of, of all that's going on. And he, as we're going to go through this, he starts, he addresses all these different groups of people in different situations. And we're not going to have time to get into all the details and weeds in this passage. But the main thing to remember is that in the context of marriage, um, men and women were not equal. Right? We, we talked about how men had multiple women in their lives, typically, and it, wasn't, it was a common thing. And um, they, a, a married man would have a concubine, a mistress. It would be acceptable to, for him to visit um, a prostitute of a brothel every you know, a few days a week on his way home from work. And then his, he would get married. Men were to marry in that culture, really primarily to have their home taken care of and to bear them children. That was kind of the, the role of the wife in this day and age. They had very, very little rights in the context of marriage. Maybe the only thing that they had was they, they did have more security. They were going to be protected more economically than a single woman. But past that, they didn't have a lot of rights. So that's the culture that Paul's writing this letter into. And a lot has changed since then into our culture. And we got to be careful not to read this First, through our culture, we'll get there, but first we need to read it, seeing it through their culture. And like I said, he's talking about marriage here, but the, the context is really muddy, and I'll try to untie some of these knots as we go through, but um, I'm not going to be able to get to every scenario, every question, so if you have questions about something I've said or I didn't go deep enough for you in a specific situation, please don't hesitate to email me um, or, or find me afterwards, and, and you can ask that question. Let's look at Mark 10, 6 through 9. And this is Jesus really teaching on marriage. Like this, Jesus comes out and he says, this is, this is really what marriage is. He says, and he quotes Genesis here, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So what Jesus is saying here is that when you get married, you give up some of your individuality. You will give up autonomy when you get married. It's going to happen. Like that, that's the part of two individual people coming together uh, to make one flesh, one person. And we're going to get to it here in a second, but Paul ends up saying that this is a mystery. Like it's hard to even get our minds around this idea that two people can become one in that sense. And so when two people become married, all their other relationships will change because they got married. Like the way I related to my guy kind of guy friends and stuff, like my, my, my buddies, it changed. Like I didn't spend as much time with them. I didn't have the free time just to drop everything and go when I got married. It changed the way I related to the opposite sex, to women, once I got married. I had to change some, some things that I did and how I talked and, and those kinds of things when I got married. Changed my relationship with my parents. I was leaving them in some sense to marry Nicole. And then Nicole was leaving her parents as well. I got a, a new family when, when we came together. So all of the relationships around us change when two people, uh, when two people become one. And we are one with our spouses. What everything I do affects Nicole, whether I like to admit it or not, what I think, how I act, uh, my emotions, they affect Nicole. Everything she does, thinks, reacts, they affect me. We are one. 
And so God says that what man is joined together, let, let, what God is joined together, let not man separate. And this is why when people are separated, when we call that, would we call it divorce, there's a tearing. Because want, two have become one, and to pull those two apart, there's a tearing. There's damage done when that happens. And this is what Jesus is communicating here when he's saying this. Now, I'll say this. I, I know in, 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 a, in a room like this, there are uh, more singles than, than married people. And so today we're going to focus on marriage. But I encourage you to stick with me because most of you will be married one day. Um, and if you're not, if you don't get married, you're going to be around married people in the life of the church. Okay, so it's good for you to, to learn and think about this. But next week, we're going to talk about singleness. And we're going to unpack things that Paul's going to get into next week. So we will get there. Let's jump into verse 1. Here's where he refers to this letter. He says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So he's received this letter. And he's quoting something that they put in their letter. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So this is what the church has said in the context of this letter. And so Paul is going to correct this because this is wrong, right? And, and they're talking about, um, well, well, back up a second. Remember in the culture, this culture is very hedonistic, very licentious when it comes to uh, sex and sexual immorality, right? It's, there's, there's a lot of it going on around them. A lot of it's happening. And you can imagine the religious people wanting to pull that pendulum, probably by accident, back to the other side and becoming the kind of over-spiritualizing um, sex and trying, in, in efforts to protect um, uh, from, from, from going in that other direction that the culture is. So that's one reason why um, they've probably written this to Paul. And the second reason is because, of, if you remember, they have this, this, this really poor view of the body. They were minimizing the body, elevating the spirit, and so they would kind of, same thing in marriage, they were taking this everything. The spirit is more important, the body is less important. And so whether we ha have sex or not in marriage, it really doesn't matter. It only matters what we do with our spirit. And Paul obviously is going to say, and in the context of marriage, it's not, that's not a good philosophy, right? We don't need to, 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 to live that way in the context of marriage. So he's talking to married people here, and what they were advocating for is abstinence within marriage because the bodies weren't necessarily good and it was more important to be a spiritually enlightened person. And let's look how he answers them in verse 2. But because of the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Very straightforward there. Verse 3. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights or sexual rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. So in that culture, after that line, they'd have been like, yep, that's right. right we get it. Right? That's, that's the way, that's the way we, we go here. But listen, he goes on. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. That would have sent ripples through everyone who was listening. They're like, wait a minute. Like, there, there's, there's some equality here. Like, there's, there's, like we've, we've lost some autonomy, and so we, we have to submit to some authority with our bodies to our spouses. That would have been crazy for them to hear. Verse 5, it says, Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by an agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come back together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Okay, 
So ultimately here, the main point of this, Paul's trying to say, is that there's this mutual submission in marriage. This, it's two becoming one. This marriage is about a matter of putting your needs aside, putting your wants aside for the sake of your spouse. And we'll get into more of that here in a second. But notice the pattern here. He first begins by talking to the husband. In verse 3, he, he addresses the husband first. And I think this is a, this is a, a hint that he's coming at that, that there is some leadership um, um, role of the husband here that he's coming at first. So he addresses the husband first. But also don't miss that this isn't like 50-50. This is like, like it's 50-50. It's, 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 it's 100-100. 100% of me now belongs to Nicole, 100% of her belongs to me. It's not like I'm going to give half to her and, 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 and I'm going to keep half, whether that's time or money or attention, whatever it is. It's, it's we're two becoming one. And the other thing he was trying to, trying to do here, and you'll see this, he's trying to um, kind of moving away from this hierarchical view of sex within marriage because that's what this culture was about. If we go over to Ephesians 5, this is Paul's primary teaching about marriage in the New Testament. This is the passage that we walk premarital, a uh, couple student premarital. This is where that we, we, I usually preach on this when I'm doing weddings. Um, I love this passage. But oftentimes this passage is started in verse 22 rather than verse 21. In verse 22, you get into the, where it says, um, you know, husbands, um, wives submit to your husbands because in this metaphor, husbands represent Jesus and women represent the church. So wives should submit to their husbands and husbands should love their wives. Um, and that, that is true. But before that even happens, he says those things. In verse 21, he says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So before he gets to marriage, he's talking to the church and he's saying, as brothers and sisters in Christ, there should be mutual submission. There, 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 there's, there's an equality in our relationship as brothers and sisters in Christ. And then he goes into marriage. And so there's some tension there when we start talking about the role of, of men and women and how and men represent Christ and women represent the church. That is true. That is the metaphor. But it's coming after this verse, verse 21, that's talking about submitting to one another. So it's important to keep that in mind once we move into this. And, but, but once again, the main thing here is in our culture... Um, Really, sex and even marriage, is, it's really about what I'm going to get out of it. How are my needs going to be met? How am I going to be fulfilled? Does this person complete me? All, all of those types of things that we kind of borrow from our culture, and it kind of becomes about me. It becomes about you instead of about thinking through what is this marriage going to look like for a long time as it relates to that, that mutual submission and sacrificing for one another. I want to move on to the end of this passage in Ephesians 5, in verses 31 and 32. It says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Similar to what Jesus just said we saw. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. Even Paul is calling this a mystery, right? Like, this is mysterious how this works. That in the context of marriage, when a husband and wife come together, they are actually putting on display... They're telling the story of Jesus in the church. They're telling the story of, of a sinf sinful humanity, sinful people that Jesus is laying down his life for to bring back, to purchase back. And he is the husband and the church. Christians are the bride. And mysteriously, God has created marriage. He's designed marriage primarily to tell that story. 
primarily to, to, be, a, to be a witness and a, to communicate God's goodness and his grace and his mercy to his people. This is the primary purpose of, of, of marriage. And so ultimately, our relationship with God is not about us. We know that, right? It's we're to deny ourselves and follow him. We're to love God and love others like we love ourselves, right? Two greatest commandments. This, this Christian life is not about us. So God gives us marriage, most of us, as a tool, and other relationships as well, but marriage as a tool to show us that this is really, really hard. It's really, really hard in a relationship to not make it about me, to make it about you. And so he gives marriage to us as a, as a, as a lab to work out our sanctification, to learn what it, looks like, what, it, what it means to look like Jesus, right? This is, this is God's purpose for marriage to show us that, yeah, our relationship with him is not about us, and the marriage relationship is not about us. And this is a person we, we get to see almost every day, and we get to work that out and kind of just grind that out on day after day after day, and, and, and that love grows deeper, and our love for, for God grows more as a result of that, hopefully in the context of a healthy marriage. I know in my own marriage, most of the, the fights we have, um, and I say fights, that's, that's kind of a step beyond conflict, right? When two people get married, um, two sinners come together, share a house, um, you're going to conflict, right? That conflict's not bad. That's just two sinners who have different personalities, different viewpoints, coming together, trying to do life together. What becomes difficult is when those things kind of take the next step into an actual fight. Like our tones get bad, we, our looks get worse, we say things maybe we shouldn't say, we, one of us gets hurt or both of us gets hurt in the middle of that conflict, and all, I would say 95% of those come back to me not having my needs met, from my standpoint. Like, she didn't meet my needs, she didn't meet my expectations in this area, I, I assume something different, um, and then I get defensive, and then I, I escalate that conflict into more of a fight. And she would say the same thing as well. And so oftentimes, just the basic conflict, and in, 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 in even you could take this outside of marriage as, as well, in relationships, when we have trouble, it's because we're being selfish. It's because we're looking to our own needs more than the needs of the other person. Look at Philippians 2.3. This is a verse out of that passage from Paul talking about how we should model our life after the humility of Jesus and what he showed us. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition. Nothing, he says, or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Like if that, if we could just, if I could just do that in my marriage, like every moment of the day, a lot of the difficulties in, in marriage would go away. But I'm a sinful human being that's still selfish, so is Nicole, and that is really, really hard, lived out day in and day out, which is why we need God's grace and mercy every single day, especially in the context of marriage. Um, another part of this, kind of to get more uh, practical again, that this, this, this idea of sex doesn't start in the bedroom. It doesn't start in the bedroom. It starts in the kitchen. It starts in the living room. It starts at the grocery store. It starts when we're doing just everyday acts of service towards one another that builds our affinity, that builds our love for one another, and that is expressed uh, physically and most intimately in the bedroom then. 
And so, but, but the things don't just, are, are, you don't serve one another, and then you get to go to the bedroom and, and have sex. That's not the way it works, right? It's, it's a holistic thing, and so mar- uh, sex is supposed to be the kind of the culmination or the primary intimate thing we do as husband and wife to, to, to kind of cement and to remember that covenant we have with one another. Now, there's a lot of uh, singles. When I say single in here, I just mean non-married, so singles in here. Um, here's just a word of advice to you. Learn now how to be a servant. Learn now. Like, one of the things that if, if, if I could go back, and, and, and even as I talk to people, if you, were to, if you were to be described by someone from afar, and they were to say, tell me about so-and-so, give me a couple of words to describe them, I would want being a servant or servant harder to be at the top of the list or in the top few. Because that, that, you can work that out now as a single person. You can become a servant. Learn how to give your life for the sake of others. If you can learn that and master that and get that down, it's going to go much better for you if God has marriage for you in the future. It just does. Like This is the thing, even in the counseling I do, it comes back to a husband or a wife not wanting to serve one another, not wanting to lay their preferences or lay their, um, their sin down for the sake of God and their spouse. So learn how to be a servant now. You can practice this. So there's this mutual um, kind of submission, this mutual thing that we have as husband and wife. Now, and where our bo- my body is not my body anymore, it's also my wife's and vice versa. Now, with all of that, that's the ideal. But I also know that this is a broken, messed up world where a lot of horrific things happen, like abuse, let's say. So when there's abuse that's happening in the relationship, you can almost take this out the window because the person who is doing the abusing is really choosing to not play their part in the, the gospel narrative that God has called us to. So this doesn't mean that you just have to go along with some sinful pattern of behavior that your husband or wife has. That's not what this is saying. This is the ideal, and this is, this is kind of what Paul's holding out there. But in this real world where there's sin, um, abuse is not the picture of what God wants for us. It's not the picture of God's love for us. So you need to get help. You need to get out of the relationship temporarily at least and get help for you and the, the abuser in that situation. And so I, I know that could be a part of some of your stories in here, and I don't just want to skip over that um, as a part of this. So being in an abusive relationship does not um, apply to the, hey, you, your, your body is now your spouse's, and so you just kind of need to take whatever you get. That is not true. That's just a caveat I wanted to say. Um, let's go back up to verse 5. Um, and this, this, this uh, do not deprive one another, except perhaps uh, by agreement for a limited time. He's saying there are seasons where that you shouldn't have sex. There's going to be, there's going to be uh, seasons, and he says limited time notice. So where you, he, he uses prayer as an example. Um, uh, there's medical things that come up where that won't be able to happen for a, a length of time, and that's okay. That's okay, Paul's saying, but the... the the norm should be consistent um, sexual life as a, mar- uh, a married uh, husband and wife. Going back to that original statement in their letter, abstinence is not good in marriage. It's not good. That's a sign of an unhealthy marriage if there's a long period of abstinence in marriage. That's not healthy. So he's giving them some, again, some direction 
hey, if you have to do this, if you need to do this, then you can be able to do that. Okay, let's go to verse 6. I'm going to start going a little quicker because he's going to get into some specific situations that we just don't have time to get too far in the weeds in. Verse 6, now as a concession, this is an interesting phrase here, as a concession, not a command. So he's kind of softening it by saying that. This is, this is, what I'm, this is my advice. It's not really a command, Paul's saying. I say this, I wish that all were as, a, as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Now, oftentimes this verse is misused a little bit in kind of saying, well, if you're single, you're, that's just your gift right now. And I'm sure some of you that are single, that don't want to be single, don't like that just thrown at you. Like, oh, you just got this gift of singleness then if you don't happen to be married. That's, that's, that's abused when, when that's thrown out in the church world. What this is saying is Paul, it seems, had this, this calling to celibacy. It was more than he was just single. Like, he was content. He thought it was a gift. He treated it as a calling. And so that's what he's referring to. He's not re- referring to, hey, I'm just, if you just happen to be single right now, treat it as a gift. That's, that's not what he's saying. Now, do you need to be content? Yes. Do you need to be focused on the right things? Yes. But that, he, he's using strong language there because he's saying, I wish all that were as myself am. And he's going to talk about that. We're going to get into that a little bit more next week. But he's saying there's some benefits to living this life of celibacy, and he'll get into that. But he's also saying but each has his own gift from God. Some have the gift of marriage, some have the gift of singleness. And so he's not putting one above the other necessarily, and we'll unpack that a little bit more um, next week. Um, Verse 8, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Here's another one that's sometimes um, misused, I would say, to say if two people are dating and they're just having trouble in the area of sexual immorality, kind of staying apart, then you should just get married because it's better to be married than burn with passion. Well, it's, 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 that's not necessarily what this is saying, okay? So probably what is he's talking to here, that unmarried word there, um, is probably not, doesn't mean singles, because he's going to talk all about that later in this chapter. So what most commentators think, and this is a hard one to understand, but most commentators think that he's talking to, because he pairs it with widows, someone who's lost a spouse. Um, he's, he's talking about someone, at some, some kind of extenuating circumstances, they've lost their spouse. They're gone, they're dead, they, they, they've gone away, whatever it is. But this isn't not just your um, kind of average single person, okay? This is to the unmarried and widow. So they've probably been married before. Okay, because he's still talking to married people or people who have been married. That's the context. To the married and the widows, I said it's good for them to remain single as I am. And so he's saying if you're a widow or your, your spouse is that, it's probably best if you don't get married. That's his advice. But the, the kind of the concession is, is that if you are, if you are um, uh, tempted by sexual immorality and you just can't, you've experienced that before in another relationship and you want that relationship again in that area, that it might be, um, then they should marry. For it is better than to marry than burn with passion. So he's probably talking to someone who's been married before. That's what most commentators think, rather than just talking to this, this general group of, of single people along with widows, because those two things don't seem to uh, go together there, most commentators would say. Now, verse 10, he's going to switch um, to marrieds here. He goes, to the married, this is kind of the, the, the people who are married currently, 
I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. Once again, Paul's saying, he's probably saying, um, I'm not necessarily, this isn't a teaching from God, this is more of my human wisdom, but it's still in our scripture, so we need to treat it like it's inspired, okay? That's that kind of, kind of weird phraseology there that he used. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. What he's just saying there is because what God has joined together, let no man separate. Once someone is married, they are married in the eyes of God, even if divorce papers have been signed. Okay? So he sees them as still married. God, God doesn't necessarily honor the divorce papers. He still sees them as married. So what he's saying here is if you do get divorced, like that you're still, you're still in God's eyes, you're still married, so don't remarry. Okay, don't remarry because in God's eyes, you're, you're just separated from your spouse because he still sees you as married. So we've, we've preached on divorce several times here over the years, so well, I won't get into it. You can go back and um, listen to those or you can ask me questions about it. But ultimately here, if you start with the high view of marriage that this is telling a story of Christ and his church and the faithfulness that Jesus has for his people. No matter how they act, no matter what they do, he still comes running and loves his people. If you have that high view of marriage, you're going to have to say divorce is wrong. And it's, it's, it's not good. It's not God's design, and it is sin. Now, is it an unforgivable sin? No, I don't think it is. But it is a sin, and God doesn't like it. And divorce does bring damage. And you can see that if you ask most people who have been divorced or who are families of divorcees, I come from parents who have been divorced, there was damage. Like it would have been better if they would have remained married. Now, forgiveness can happen absolutely. You, it, the, those things can work itself out, out after the fact, but he's talking to married people here, people who have not made that decision. And he's saying, do not divorce. Do not divorce. And for us as a church, this is a great reminder that we need to fight for marriages. Even you, those of you who aren't married yet, you can still be a part of fighting for marriages. Things, really, really bad things happen to one another in marriages, it's okay to separate. He's already given them permission to kind of take some time apart in the area of sex. It's okay to separate. It's okay to, to hit time out. It's okay to move out for a little bit if that needs to happen. We often think of separation as the first step towards divorce. We need to start thinking of separations. Maybe the first step towards reconciliation is to step out and then come back in. We shouldn't treat separation as the first step to divorce or if someone moves out of the house temporarily. Okay, okay so we need to fight for marriages. Um, there, again, there's, there's all sorts of rules and, and, um, and um, kind of exceptions that are talked about throughout the scriptures. Like I said, we've addressed those in other sermons, whether it's abuse, adultery, some of those things. Um, and, and it's kind of a case-by-case -case basis in some of those areas. But the, the large teaching of scripture is, God hates divorce, and divorce is wrong. And then some of those other situations, you kind of have to take them as they come. Verse 12, and we're going to go through this really quick, um, but I'm going to go ahead and read it. To the rest I say, I not the Lord, again, he says this again, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. Now this is kind of, basically it's when, an, uh, when, a, when a Christian and a non-Christian come together and get married. And this, we, that's probably not super common, maybe, in our culture, but in that culture, remember, this is a church plant. A lot of people are coming to know Jesus quickly, and there's probably people who are already married, where one is becoming a Christian, and one hasn't yet. 
And that's creating some issues, right? Because this one person may be still living this life of sexual immorality, and this other person now has their heart changed, they have the Holy Spirit, and now they want to obey God in the area of their sexuality. So what do we do? That's what Paul is addressing here. So this isn't, this isn't uh, for you singles, this isn't like missionary dating, right? Like we, 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 can, we can date someone who's not a Christian in hopes that they will eventually become a Christian. I think that's not a good idea. Um, this is for people who are already married, okay? So verse 13, if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him, okay? So if he chooses to stay, the unbelieving party, whether it's a man or woman, if they choose to stay, stay with him. Stay with him. Don't, don't leave. So here's why. Four, the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. This is a really hard verse, and I don't have time to go in all the, all the different angles of this verse. But ultimately, in general, they're saying that if in marriage, if you were to stay together, there's a, at least a chance that this, this unbelieving spouse may become a follower of Jesus. Like the grace that you have in your home now, the spirit that works in your home now, there's a chance that this person could come to know Jesus. Maybe a better chance than if you left. And especially for your children, if you have children together, it will be a better chance that they would come to know Jesus than if you moved out and you had kid issues now and you got divorced. Like that's a mess. So he's saying stay together. Now he says, but listen to this, verse 15, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So if the unbelieving partner takes off and leaves and says, I can't deal with your new Christian religion, faith thing. It's weird. I'm out. I'm not going to change my lifestyle. And they just leave, then basically you're not bound to the marriage. That's what Paul's saying here. You're not bound to that person because they never knew the context of the, 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 the Christ and church metaphor and they're leaving. And he says, that we're called to peace. So don't go make this a mess. Don't go make this an issue. You can let them go if, if, if that's what you choose to do. Verse 16, for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? And that's back to this idea that, that it's, a bet, it's, a, it's a better chance of the unbelieving spouse coming to know Jesus if you stay together. Okay, so this really gets at this idea of being unequally yoked. And that, that that phrase is thrown out a lot. And really what that, what that means is when two people come together, once again, they're telling the story. They're telling the story of the union that Christ has with his church. And so when an unbeliever comes into that situation, it's a mess because they're not, they don't understand the story. They don't have the Holy Spirit. It, it, it's going to be difficult for them to live a life that lives up to telling that metaphor. And this is, it's really a false picture of the union with Jesus and really a false picture of Ephesians 5. So, the gospel. I want us to go back to the gospel here to, to, to know that our, 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 really, I tell this to the married couples, your only hope in marriage is to remember, remember the gospel. Your only hope in marriage is to remember that the only reason you're saved is because of Jesus's, uh, the person work of Jesus and God's grace and mercy found in him. That's the only reason why you're saved. Scriptures say, while we were yet sinners, Jesus died for us. His love wasn't conditional on our behavior, so why should our love be conditional on our spouse's behavior? Okay, We should put our needs aside. We should lay our lives down for our spouse, for our husband and wives. And the only way we can possibly do this over the long haul is to be changed and to be humbled by 
God's grace found in the gospel. In this, in his book, uh, Eli Finkel, he's a psychologist. He talks about just the changing views on marriage here. He says, just a few generations ago, the ideal marriage was defined by love, cooperation, and a sense of belonging to a family and community. That's a kind of a traditional view of marriage. Today's newlyweds, Finkel argues, want all that, so they want that, and prestige, autonomy, personal growth, and self-expression. A marriage is supposed to help the individuals within it become the best versions of themselves. This means that more and more Americans turn to their spouses for their needs they once expected an entire community to fulfill. Now, this, he's not a Christian, so he's, he's just writing it with those two things. But what's happening, this is called idolatry, and this happens in uh, Christian marriages all the time, where the husband or the wife is putting all the pressure on their spouse to be Jesus for them. They want all their fulfillment, all their identity, all their worth, all their joy to be found in this marriage. And so they heap all this weight upon their spouse, and, and no human being can possibly stand up under that weight. And that will make that other person feel miserable because you've turned them into, to, they're expecting them to be God for you, expecting them to be Jesus. When you're supposed to look to Jesus for your salvation, not the person you're being married. So you're free to one, love one another in freedom and lay yourself lives down for that person because you don't need them to be God for you. You don't need them to rescue you. You don't need them to save you because you already have a rescuer. You already have a savior. Marriage, once again, isn't about two individuals coming together, getting their needs met or being self-actualized or having all their longings fulfilled. That's not the purpose of marriage. The purpose of marriage is to tell the story of the greater marriage. And that is of Christ and the church. So I want to close with this passage, going back to Ephesians 5. I, I love these verses because this is the picture that we get of Christ and the church and how we've been loved by him as his bride. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. We don't make ourselves holy and without blemish. It says he presents her holy and without blemish. He's the one who cleansed us, and he presents us to, uh, for himself to take as his bride. This is the gospel. This is what marriage is to represent. So the quicker we can understand the gospel, the better we understand the gospel and the hope we have in the gospel, the healthier, um, the better chance our marriages have, have of being healthy. Now, here's a homework, and I'm going to give this to marrieds and to singles in here. One thing, marrieds, ask your spouse how you can serve them this week. What's one way, honey, that I can serve you better this week? One way. And if you're asked that question, don't use this as a chance to unroll all your frustrations, right? Don't, don't take this as a chance of this, this, this. No, like start small. Pick the thing that you really want them to serve you in that week and be very direct, be very clear. And y'all do that for each other and see how that goes this week. Just ask each other, how can I better serve you? It's amazing how that one, me just asking Nicole that, makes her feel so loved and valued. And that was a really easy thing just to ask her that. And then she'll tell me, and I'll, if, if hopefully I'm, I'm, I write it down and I'm a good husband and I'll do it. Right, And it, it'll make her feel valued and worth. And that, that's part of giving of yourself in marriage. Now, singles in here, I want you to do that for a roommate. Maybe it, you're in a serious dating relationship. Like, like 
Y'all practice that by just asking that question. What can I do this week? Put a time limit on it, so something soon. What can I do this week to serve you better? And then listen and take notes and ask the Holy Spirit to help you do it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for, um, once again, passages that are relevant without having trying to, trying to make them relevant. This is just the next week in this, in this study, in this book, and we get to talk about marriage, which um, between this week and next week affects all of us in this room. Whether it's marriage or singleness, you will, you will speak to all of us in one way or the other, and we're so thankful for that. And I pray that through your word and through the gospel that you would change us, you would help us um, have healthy marriages and help the singles in this room prepare uh, for marriage or maybe for a, a, a calling of singleness. Um, but, but I just pray that you would prepare us, help us lean into that, help us be thinking about that. And I pray that we would also understand that this is, it's an impossible task to live up to the perfect marriage of Jesus and his, and, and his bride, the church. We're called to be as faithful as possible in showing the world what this looks like. But your grace is sufficient, and it will cover a multitude of sins, as we all do in, in, our, in our relationships, especially marriage relationships. So help us. Help us in that area. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.